It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm author and journalist Laura Price, and you're listening to Life in Food, inspiring stories in bite-sized pieces. Each episode, I interview a different guest about how food has helped them through some of their biggest challenges. With a different theme each week, we look at everything from food and love to food and friendship, food and family, and even food and grief. This week's episode is food and death with Dr. Catherine Mannix, a former palliative care consultant who now writes books and speaks publicly to help people gain a better understanding of what happens when we die. A few years ago, Dr. Catherine published her first book, a Sunday Times bestseller called With the End in Mind, which is a series of stories from her years in palliative care, which aims to help people not feel quite so scared about death and dying. Dr. Catherine has just published her second book, Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations, which is a hugely useful guidebook for communicating with people, whether it's talking to a loved one about dying or even helping a teenager through their career choices or coming out to their parents. I came across Catherine's first book, With the End in Mind, about six years after my breast cancer diagnosis, and it really helped me to feel less scared about the idea of eventually dying and of my loved ones dying. When I was diagnosed recently with secondary breast cancer, I remembered some of the stories from that book and I think it has genuinely stayed in my consciousness and helped me to have conversations with my loved ones about my illness. It has also really helped with my thoughts about my own death and even though that's hopefully a long way off and it's something I'm not quite ready to talk to anyone else about yet, I know that when the time comes I'll be drawing on Catherine's wisdom and advice to get through it and help my loved ones through it. Catherine has been a guest on many a podcast talking about all aspects of death and palliative care but this is the life in food podcast so I'm talking to her about the link between food and death. What happens to our appetites as we die? How to celebrate a loved one through food? And what on earth is a death cafe? Catherine thank you so much for joining me and welcome to life in food. Laura thank you so very much for inviting me. So I'm really curious about death. Um, But when I was preparing for this interview, I realized that I was actually quite scared of talking to you about death. And I think the reason for that is that my family and friends listen to this podcast and I'm worried about upsetting them. And I think probably therein lies the problem. So from your experience as a palliative care doctor and a cognitive behavioral therapist, why do you think we're so reluctant to talk about death? It's a completely brilliant question. Um, There are PhDs 
being written about this. But at the risk of making it a bit too simple, I think it's because we love each other and we don't want to make each other sad. And usually when we're talking about dying and death, we're either talking about missing a person we love who's died or we're talking about our anxieties about a person who we love who either is dying or might not have as long to live as we would like them to have. So we're anxious that on the one hand we've got all this stuff inside us that needs to be, it's better out than in, it's better talked about and thought through and organised and yet if I start to talk to you and you are my friend, my daughter, my sister, my mum about that. Um, how's that going to be for you? I know that I want to talk about it. It will make me feel better, mm. but is it okay for me to make myself feel better by making you sad? And in fact, it's that very question that led to the second book being written. The first book was, well, as you know, it's just, it's just stories about how people live who happen to be dying at the time, but it's partly just to show people how we're living at that point in time. Um, and if we if we badge it only as dying, we miss the very fact that every day is still there to be used. So I got lots of feedback from that book, from people saying, well, okay, you've convinced us we should be talking about this, but I don't know where to start. Or if, if I mention it, is that like um, we've taken the lid off the box and we'll never, ever be able to talk about anything other than gloomy stuff forever after that? Or what if I make somebody sad? What if I upset somebody? And they're all really realistic fears, aren't they? So the second book is about those kind of daunting conversations to encourage us all to step up. Because we know that while we sit with all of the emotions and the what-ifs and the worries inside our head, worry is our brain's mechanism for making sure that we don't forget to do something. Mm. So for as long as we don't do it, the idea keeps popping into our head and it's our brain saying, well, you haven't sorted this out yet. You haven't had that conversation yet. You haven't asked that person about this thing yet. You haven't mentioned that they mustn't forget to do this yet. So it keeps coming back and reminding us and it then pops up during the times that you don't want to be thinking about it because you're doing something ordinary and nice and bing, there's that thought again. So I think we find it hard. Because it's hard. And it's hard because it makes us sad. And it makes us sad because we love each other. <laughs> but not doing it is emotionally more costly than actually doing it, feeling the emotions, letting the emotions pass, and coming out the other side of the conversation thinking, oh, well, we all know what everybody else thinks now. Wow. And that wasn't nearly as terrible as I was expecting. That's so true. I So I've been, as I guess, a part of the cancer community, if we can call it that, for the last 11 years almost. Uh, and I find that people who have had cancer or who have cancer are slightly more open to thoughts about death. And that's probably because they've been confronted with it. Um, so perhaps for me, it's slightly easier to talk about death with someone who also has cancer or secondary breast cancer, for example. But with my loved ones, it's harder. So Obviously, first of all, I recommend that everyone buys your book, listen, particularly on Audible, where they can listen to you um, narrating it in such a beautiful way. Um, but could you give us a bit of a, a bit of a preview 
into how you would recommend someone like me go about talking to my family about my own death and what my fears and sort of expectations are. Okay, so it's the biggie, isn't it? It's the conversation that everybody thinks we might all feel a little bit better if we knew what our dear person is worrying about, might have concerns about, wants us to know about, all of that, and nobody wants to start the conversation because, oh, what if I choose the wrong day, what if I choose the wrong moment, blah, 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 blah. So I think maybe the first thing is that there's a difference between inviting somebody to have the conversation and actually having the conversation. Mm. And that thing about, I don't even know how to mention it, we can get that bit over, can't we, by saying, there is something I'd really like to talk to you about and I'd like to plan a time that feels okay for you when we can both talk about it. And what I want to talk about is, and then the thing that it is. And you can watch their eyes and their face doing that, whoa, I didn't see that coming thing. But it's not sitting inside you now like some kind of dark secret. I want to talk to them about this and they don't even know that I want to talk about it. So I think the first secret, if you like, to success is just to invite people. Here's something I'd like to talk about and also then to plan it. So the next secret is that it doesn't have to be a single conversation. It can be a series of short conversations where you just cover a little bit. Nobody's damaged. It's all okay. So nobody dreads the next one because this one was okay. So I recommend to people that they plan to do something and to do it in a way that's enjoyable. So doing it over a nice meal or doing Mm. it during before doing something nice, like you've got a really lovely snack planned afterwards, (laughs) or you're going to go, I don't know, watch a particular favourite film, perhaps even go out to the cinema for a treat. Um, that you you know we're going to have this conversation but that's not the only thing we're going to do and after we finish that bit we're going to do something else that we all know we can look forward to mm-hmm. and if this becomes a kind of regular troubleshooting slot you know once a month we we meet up we do what's in everybody's heads about what's going on with whatever the situation is in this particular person's family and we're just going to do that for 20 minutes everybody's going to say their piece we all know where everybody is. We, we might not all be on the same page, but at least we all know which page everybody is on. And then we're going to do this thing that we can all enjoy together. It just takes all of the tension out of it. And it stops the worry because the brain now knows, oh, yeah, I don't have to worry about that because next Thursday is the time when that's going to get spoken mm-hmm. about. I love that idea. And also, I know that feeling of when you have a conversation that you're not particularly looking forward to, when you get it out of the way, it always feels so much better. And you also really, really enjoy the thing that you, you're doing afterwards. Like, you, you, And it stops you from enjoying other things when you're worrying about conversations. Um, you mentioned perhaps doing it over a nice meal or having a nice snack lined up. I'm going to get onto food in a moment. But first, I just wanted to ask you about the word palliative. Um, because I know there are misunderstandings about that word and we generally tend to think it means end of life. Um, But could you explain what that word actually means, please? With the greatest of pleasure, because there's so (laughs) much misunderstanding. So um, palliative care comes from the Latin palliare, meaning to cloak. 
So literally you're disguising something. Mm. So if somebody's got an illness that's making them feel unwell, then we want them to not feel unwell. And the best way to make them feel better is to cure the illness. Yeah. So a lot of the time, palliative care people meet people with illnesses that can't simply be cured and then they'll feel better. And it might be that the illness that they've got is an illness that isn't going to be cured. But really important, it might be an illness that's going to be cured. But the cure itself causes symptoms that make it difficult to continue with the treatment. And I know that you will know all about this. So um, palliative care teams in cancer centres, for example, quite often see people having radiotherapy or chemotherapy or, or other treatments absolutely with the intent of curing the person. But the treatment itself is making the person feel so rotten that they might not be able to get the treatment on the right days, at the right frequency, for the right amount of time. So clearly palliating their symptoms, toning down the symptoms so the person can get on with the treatment is part of their curative care. Mm. And it's really, really important that people don't feel frightened by the idea that the palliative care team is coming in because we're simply there to help them feel well enough not to need us anymore and then we'll back out. That's a little bit different when you're talking about specialists in palliative care from a palliative approach to looking after an illness. And I think that's where the confusion with end-of-life care comes in because by the time it's very clear that a person's life won't be saved and the end of their life is approaching, then whoever the doctors and nurses are who are looking after that person, GP, district nurse, hospital heart specialist or lung specialist or cancer specialist team, whatever they are, they may very well by now be taking what they would call a palliative approach. And what they're doing is trying to get maximum good quality of life for minimum amount of symptoms caused by the treatment itself. End of life care, really, really important. But if the palliative care team needs to come in, it doesn't mean the person's more dying than they were yesterday. It just means that there are symptoms that the specialist tweaks that the palliative care team can add are required. So we just move in and out, supplementing other people's teams, bringing our extra bit of expertise in as and when we're needed. Yeah. You're not obliged to die just because <laughs> we've met the palliative care team. So I'm going to move on to food or actually it's probably more drink. I wanted to talk about tea. Um, it's a very British thing. Ah, you're drinking a cup right now. <laughs> a lovely yellow sunshiny cup. Um, I noticed that tea gets a lot of mentions in your books. Um, and when we're talking about difficult conversations in listen, there's often a cup of tea involved. Um, there's a lot of cups of tea in my book as well. And um, I think tea is just linked with death and dying and, and difficult situations. What do you think it is about tea that that comforts us? So I think there's a couple of things here. There's something familiar, isn't there, about just the ritual of a cup of tea. And when I was a newly qualified doctor, which is a long time ago now, when families came in after a person had died on the ward and they would come in to collect the person's belongings and 
collect the death certificates and have conversation with one of the doctors who looked after them about, you know, exactly what had happened. Maybe they might have questions that they wanted answers to. Then our ward system would send the healthcare assistant, they were called auxiliary nurses in those days, a wonderful woman called Joy would be sent to make the tea. And then Joy would come in with a tray and a posh tea pot and china cups and saucers. Mm. It was really posh and it was only ever used for these really, really special visitors. The rest of the time we just made do with mugs, tea bag in the cup, mm. you know how it goes. But for bereaved visitors, there was this kind of ceremony of caring for them and serving them and pouring the tea for them. And I think that that was something that was about a courtesy and and a, a kind of expression of their specialness to us. Tea, though, for the rest of my career has been about comfort. And I'm a great believer in the mug. I don't think a teacup is big enough. So here I am. I'm holding my mug now. Yeah. As you say, it's yellow. It's got a bullfinch on it. Yeah. A cup of tea. And I'm feeling the warmth of the cup. And it's giving me a sense of being embodied. That I can smell the, the kind of familiar, malty smell of the tea. I'm sure people who are coffee uh, fiends get the same kind of... Oh, the aroma of good coffee is really important to them. So it's touch, it's taste, it's smell. And also, if I was having a difficult day at work, the the brewing, again, tea bag mm. in a cup, nothing nothing dignified like a teapot. Um, and then that moment where, where you add the milk and it swirls and it kind of clouds up in that beautiful way. And just the colour, is it the right colour of tea? You know, as somebody serving you a cup of tea, is it the right colour for you? I always thought we should have had one of those Dulux um, Pantone charts yeah. <laughs> in the kitchen with people's names next to the right colour of talk for their tea, you know? Um, so there's something about it that is personally comforting. But I've used tea, as you say, um, comes up a lot in my books, I've used tea as a tool in my trade. And that's because I always worry that there's a power imbalance in the conversations Mm -hmm. between a person who is possibly very powerful in their daily life, but rendered less powerful by their illness or by their need for help and support right now. And the healthy doctor sitting beside them with all the information in her head. And somehow, if this is a conversation that's not about the doctor, it's actually about the sick person or or the person's family, what do we do to level that playing field so that we're working with each other? And I am able to say to you, I'm not here to do things to you. I'm here to be at your service and to work through things with you at the pace that you want and at the pace that you can manage. Mm. And it seems to me that starting that conversation by serving, by offering and making a cup of tea, is a way in which maybe I can help the person to be just a little bit more at their ease. Yeah. And so I've made tea 
in hospitals and in hospices. I brewed tea in people's own kitchens. This is something that starts a conversation that isn't about illness, isn't about palliative care, isn't about death. It's just about tea. And it just gets us to a place where we can be people with each other before we've got to get into the specifics of the conversation that we're here to have. Where are you on the Pantone chart of tea? So I like uh, quite a lot of milk in my tea to the extent that I use skimmed milk in order to be able to have the right amount of milk. But I don't like it weak. So it looks pale, but it's because of the milk content. Mm. Am I being specific enough? (laughs) That's very specific. Yeah, I think I could probably make you a cup of tea successfully. Um, You made me think then of, so you talked about the teapot and the teacup, which is definitely not my preferred method of drinking tea. I love a mug as well. But I completely understood what you meant about the respect involved in that and the sort of ceremony that kind of honors the life of that person. Um, and that made me think I very recently went to the funeral of my step granddad down in Cornwall. And when we got to the wake at the pub, there was a box of freshly made Cornish pasties <clears throat> and cake. And um, I was really struck by the fact that we had something so simple as Cornish pasties to honor the life of this man who had lived until his 80s and, you know, a complex life and a really, really simple food. And it's almost in the way, the opposite of what you said about the teapot and the ceremony and the respect of that thing, because it was this really, really simple food. Um, What do you think about the concept of a Cornish pasty or a sandwich at a funeral? And why do you think we, we go with those sorts of foods? Oh, I think that's absolutely glorious. (laughs) And it's about fine tuning to the person and their personhood, isn't it? Yeah. So if people wanted to choose a food to celebrate my life, it would be hot buttered toast with marmalade. Mm. And that is my go-to comfort snack. I think that I hadn't really thought about it before, but maybe I should arrange that there should be tea and hot buttered toast available at my funeral. I, I love seeing what happens to the, the food choices when we're celebrating somebody's life. And you're making me remember an absolutely magnificent feast that I was invited to, which was when we had, um, for the very first time, a member of our local Sikh community dying in the hospice where I was working in the north of England. And ordinarily, the Sikh community would very proudly look after people to their very last breath in their own home. And because of the particular physical difficulties and symptoms that this fairly young man was experiencing, they permitted us to look after him in the hospice. Um, But they then were worried that ordinarily, as a person came towards the end of their life, there would be a ceremony in the house where the priest would come, where food that had been blessed at the temple would be served and there would be prayers of thanksgiving for the person's life and prayers for their peaceful dying. And because he wasn't at home, they were worried they couldn't do that. So we then said, well, aren't you, aren't you actually living here? Technically, isn't this your home? And that, oh, oh, yeah, okay. So, so on a Sunday afternoon, there was this wonderful party 
for this young man who was in his bed, everybody else sitting on the floor as they would do in somebody's home or at the temple where they serve food. And mm. you probably know this, they always serve food. You can't visit the Sikh temple without being fed. It's part of their belief and it's wonderful. But the thing that really strikes me, the thing I remember is coming into the hospice on Sunday afternoon, coming round to the education centre, there's a massive pile of shoes at the door mm. because this is somebody's home. And then as I open the door into the education centre, the smell of this wonderful, wonderful food. And there it is, his sisters serving it to us all, smiling, resplendent in their very, very beautiful outfits, so proud that they can do this important ceremonial meal for their beloved brother. And that all of us, in turn, who are on duty at the hospice that weekend were able to swap in and out the taste of it the smell of it the ceremony of it the importance of it to them and that this was something that was really familiar this is something that they've done hundreds and thousands of times in their community doing it for the first time in this strange place that they hadn't known before but of course as a good meal always is when there are strangers there there were no strangers and it was the cementing of a relationship between the hospice and the Sikh community afterwards. Thank you for sharing that uh, experience of a culture that, you know, I didn't know about that that ritual. And it sounds beautiful and wonderful. And it sounds right up my street, I have to say. Um, it, I was fortunate enough almost 20 years ago to uh, live in Mexico for a short while. And I while I was there, it was Day of the Dead. And I went to this... Uh, lake called Lake Patsgoro and they it's it's sort of a hill on a it's a tiny island that's basically just a hill and up the hill were all the graveyards where they decorated um the the graves with um a bread called death bread basically translates as death bread and then the sugar skulls that I think we all know about tequila and then they have music and guitars and whatever a lot of people will be familiar with with this now because of the Coco film um but I love that ritual and that idea of the Mexicans celebrating day of the dead but I don't feel we have something like that in British culture so what can we do as as British people to remember our loved ones through food and to celebrate the lives of the ones we love through food. Yes, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we've become reluctant to talk about dying and death, we've lost all of the celebratory rituals that mm. used to go with that. So the Day of the Dead in Mexico is, is a mix, isn't it, of in, indigenous beliefs mm. and then the Catholic beliefs that were brought to the Americas by the Spanish. And so it's held on the Feast of All Souls, the 2nd of November, which is the day that the Catholics traditionally pray for their dead. And we also use November as Remembrance Month, and we have Remembrance Day for our war dead yeah. during November, don't we? So November probably is the right time of year culturally for Brits to be thinking about dying and death. But have we just let it become a thing where we think about loss and sorrow? Have we forgotten about celebration and appreciation and gratitude and all of those other things? I, I'd rather think we have. Mm. And when you go to countries that celebrate the Day of the Dead or, or something like that, 
um, you know, the, the, the wonderful graveside picnics that families have, the annual redecoration of the graves. Um, I spent a, a couple of visits to Ecuador when somebody in my family was working out mm-hmm. there. And all of the graves are above ground because it's volcanic. They can't, they can't dig to bury people. Um, so they're largely breeze block graves. Mm-hmm. But they all look so beautifully kept and they're all whitewashed and they're all clean and shining. And yes, local people tell me, of course they are, because every year we get them ready for the Day of the Dead celebrations. So they're all re-whitewashed and the whitewash has to dry and be ready in time for the picnics to happen. Mm -hmm. So would we be less reluctant to talk about dying and death and remembrance? if we reincorporated celebration and gratitude at the same time, maybe, maybe that would help. I like the idea of, of celebrating on the birthday of that person, because that was when we would celebrate with them. Um, I actually live right next to it. I'm looking out onto a graveyard right now. And you and I both separately this year went to Lisbon and discovered this most incredible graveyard with the whitewashed um, above ground, very, very, um, what's the word, regal kind of graves. And I kind of had this magical experience there, actually, where it was very shortly after my um, secondary breast cancer diagnosis. It was about a month later that I went, oh, no, sorry, it was less than a month later that I went on this holiday to Lisbon. So I felt very sort of close to death in in a weird way at that time. What was your experience in in that grave? And do you think that we could perhaps to start a tradition of, of picnicking in our own graveyards here in the UK? So I, I love a good cemetery mm. and uh, yeah, I visit cemeteries and take photographs of cemeteries whenever I go on holiday. My family kind of, they just got used to it. Mm. There's something very life-affirming about being able to remember that this is now and it's the only guaranteed moment in the whole of our existence is, is right now. And I think graveyards help us to remember that. There is something very um, beautiful about that central cemetery in Lisbon and and similarly the beautiful cemeteries around central Paris with those very European-style above-ground mausoleums. And yet I I walked in a, a cemetery in Canada when I was there many, many years ago where there were no graves stones there were no markers at all there was a map and there were tiny little shiny granite plaques in the grass that marked the different places very very different but that same sense of I'm amongst the remains of people who felt like I feel now and that this is our moment in the sun as a little girl I used to go and play in the local cemetery I used to ride my bike there with my brothers and sisters or with my friends. There was um, a kind of woodland and a garden and then all of the graves. And then on the other side, there were allotments. We were forbidden to go and play in the allotments Mm. because we might, you know, inadvertently trample somebody's cabbages or knock their bean net down or something like that. And the thing that I remember is that when I was about seven or eight, the dad of a boy in my class died. I think that's the first time I can remember a person dying where I knew the person and I observed the grief Mm. of the people who survived them. And then 
that boy's dad's name appeared on one of the graves where we used to go and play. And that seemed very important to me, that there was a place and that we knew where he was. And I, I was always expecting that I would meet this boy who was in my class playing by the graves. And of course, the cemetery meant something completely different to him. Mm. But maybe that very early introduction to cemeteries as places of peace, beauty, it's allowed. You know, there are places you're not allowed to go, the allotments, but cemeteries aren't on that list. Probably very wise of my parents. I don't know. I think I, I think we we go through periods of fear, fear of sometimes of places like churches and graveyards and cemeteries. And I think trying to bring that back in whatever way possible. I remember when I was working in the city over ten years ago, and I I occasionally used to sit in a graveyard in the centre of the city and eat my sandwich in the park because mm. it was just somewhere to sit. And I think it's quite nice to do something like that because it just familiarises you with a place where at some point you might you might be spending some time. I mean, as an alive person, you might be spending some time there visiting um, your loved ones who have passed. Um, Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'd like to go back to the subject of tea. And I just want to ask you about death cafes, because this is something that you've linked to on your website. Um, what, what is a death cafe? Death Cafe is, is, is a brilliant idea. And the very first time I ever went to a death cafe, it was in London and it was being run by the person who founded the movement, a, a lovely man called John Underwood. So John's idea was that if we talked about things that feel a little bit daunting in an atmosphere that felt supportive and cheerful, we'd be less daunted and we could do a little bit more examination of the thing. And the thing he felt we needed to talk about was death. John uh, was, a, was a Western Buddhist and it was very important to him that he was comfortable with the idea of his own death. And in fact, not long after I met him, he was diagnosed with a, a terminal illness and, mm. and died a few months later. So Death Cafe is an international movement. It's got a great website you can find through search engines. It's a place where people meet to talk about whatever they want to talk about that's got to do with dying, death and bereavement. It shouldn't cost you anything to go to a death cafe. There has to be delicious cake. There's no other agenda, so it can't be used to sell services or recommend a particular type of care or approach to living or dying or religion or anything like that. So it's a completely open invitation to people to come along and talk about what they decide to talk about when they get there. What they find is, in the main, people who are increasingly comfortable talking about dying, death, bereavement, and then also people who can't find a place to talk about things that really matter to them within their own family and friendship group because their family and friendship group are so worried that it will make them sad that they close the conversations down. Mm. So every death cafe I've ever been to has included at least one person who's practising what they're going to say when their family give them a chance to say it. Mm. Um, and also, very often, there will be people there who are bereaved, who are looking for places where they can tell their stories about their beloved person and nobody's talking to them about it or listening to them talking about it in case it makes them sad. Whereas, in fact, of course, they're carrying their sadness around inside them all the time. The thing that's making them sadder is that there's no outlet for it. So they are compassionate, small communities. Increasingly, it's being taken up by um, organisations that are trying to create safe public spaces. So the Death Positive Libraries movement in Britain now is another place that's starting to host death cafes. And if your local library isn't part of the death positive movement yet, um, listeners can uh, find um, find it through their search engines. And so that's a, that's another lovely public space mm. where people can can pop along. And yeah, cake in the library. What's not to love about that? Cake and books. Cake and books, yeah. Um, Well, I wanted to ask you about that because I interviewed Chris Hallinger, the author of Glittering a Turd, for this podcast on food and cancer. And she told me about, well, actually something that features in her book, which is that at her father's funeral in Germany, they had a thing called funeral cake. And, you know, we hear a funeral cake, we hear of cake at death cafes um and cake just seems to be this thing that is linked with death why do you think 
what what is it about cake? I think cake is linked with ceremonies and life transitions, isn't it? So we have wedding cakes. Um, the, the tradition of the old tiered wedding cake was that you save the top tier to be the christening cake of your first baby. So I, I think cake is is one of our ceremonies, making the Christmas cake, and the whole family coming in and having a stir and making their wish and all the rest of it. We, we do cake beautifully. It is mm. one of our traditions. So if we're going to recapture ceremonies for picnics, do we actually need um do we need cemetery cakes? Do we need to design um, the graveyard cupcake? Oh, Ooh, <laughs> I love it. What What do you think, what would be your cake of choice for, um, I don't know, for, for either a conversation about death in the graveyard or just in a death cafe? I'm not picky about my cake. It's, I just, yeah, I just am very fond of a good cake, mm. really. I was having a conversation with my partner yesterday about Victoria sponge cake because we bought one. We were lured by one in the supermarket and it wasn't. Was it, as, it was calling you, was it? It was. You? Well, it was on discount. <laughs> Let's be honest. Okay, it, yeah, it was discounted and, and it just wasn't, it just didn't live up to scratch. And it really, I always go back to my grandma who died over 20 years ago, but she, um, she used to serve as these, I think they were shop bought. Victoria sponges and they were so fresh and I just have this memory of them they were so simple but I think for me a Victoria sponge would be a great way to celebrate death because you don't want to have to put too much effort into the making of the cake you don't want to do something too extravagant I don't think Mm, no what's nice about the idea of picnicking with cake is that the the real problem with cake of course is crumbs Mm. isn't it so the idea that we're going to all sit down for our picnic and we will leave crumbs and then the birds can come down and they can be glad that we had our picnic. So, yeah, maybe a lemon drizzle cake, yes. I think, for me. Yeah. My daughter makes the most fantastic lemon drizzle cakes. So I think, yeah, that's that's definitely got potential. Yes, I agree. Um, I wanted to talk to you about appetite. So I am a person who lives to eat rather than eating to live, although of course I do both. And I struggle with the idea that at some point I'm going to be so ill that I no longer have an appetite to eat. What happens when we get closer to death in terms of our appetites? It's it's a really important thing for people to understand this because we show people that we love them by feeding them. And so when we're looking after somebody who's very precious to us and they're really unwell, and they lose their appetite. That's really hard because when they push that plate away, it feels as though they're pushing our love away at the same time. But when we're sick, we lose our appetite. We don't have to be dying. Anybody who's had terrible flu will just remember just not being interested in food. And it's part of our physiology. It's a biological process. And it's probably at least partly because as we're getting less and less well towards the very end of our lives, our blood supply is taking oxygen to the places that matter most. And that's to our brain so that we can carry on thinking, seeing, processing, listening, talking. So the digestive process gradually is being reduced. The transit muscles in the gut aren't moving 
the contents of the intestines along in the same way that they used to. And for people like you and like me who love our food, it seems ridiculous to think that we could be in a physiological state where we're not interested in food. But that is, in fact, what happens. The idea of food is just not occurring Mm. to people. And I spoke to somebody who uh, was a, a... an endocrine expert who one of the things that he was an expert in was about thirst. And he was saying that, you know, when you're thirsty, you can just be blissed out on a cup of cold water. Yes. Which actually isn't incredibly appetizing a lot of the time. But what he said was the thing that's really interesting is we notice when we have thirst but we don't notice when we've lost the sense of thirst and he would meet patients Mm. who have dehydrated themselves because something had gone wrong with them physiologically and they've lost the sense of thirst and so they hadn't been drinking when we lose the sense of hunger though we know that we've lost the sense of hunger amongst my patients who were dying their loss of appetite was much more like what this professor had been describing as loss of thirst. They weren't complaining about a loss of appetite. They were completely satisfied not to be eating. They weren't wishing that they could enjoy food. They were wishing that they could not disappoint their families Mm. by turning the food down. So there are some tricks that we've given families down the years, but the best ones probably the serving a meal on a saucer. You're really making me think of animals because, of course, it's the same with animals. When they lose their appetites, you sort of know that they're sick. And I just have this memory of uh, me and my mum when our uh, one of our cats was very close to death and we fed her some tuna from our hands. And she it was the only thing she ate, but she ate it directly from our hands. Yes. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's the same with, with humans, I guess. You have – I've heard you describe before, you described – the process of dying so wonderfully in your first book with the end in mind and I've also heard you describe it on podcasts before would you be able to just repeat uh, or just to, to tell us what happens as we die look sort of in those final days and hours sure so we've talked a little bit about how um, the body is changing the blood supply is going to different places the uh, things that we don't notice are happening but the body has a process for dying in the same way as the body has a process for giving birth and it happens in a particular order from person to person so to start off with it's mainly just about being more tired people just feel weary they don't have energy they can't call on their energy to you know kind of grind through something there's just no no Um, And very often they find they can recharge that by having a sleep. So that's really important because we meet people who think, oh, I'm giving in if I have a sleep. No, you're not. You're putting yourself back on your charger and it's really important that you do that. So helping people to have naps is a really important part of that phase in an illness. And as time goes by, what we find is people sleep more and are awake less. And then gradually an interesting thing happens that they don't notice, but we who are looking after them do, which is that during one of the periods where they were apparently asleep, we needed to wake them up for something. Medicine time, visitor, phone call, whatever. 
and they were completely unrousable. They weren't just asleep. In fact, they were unconscious for a period of time. And yet when people wake up from that, they say they've had a nice sleep. They don't have any sense that something different happened to them. So human beings, we don't notice when we ourselves become unconscious. So time is passing. The periods of being awake get shorter. The periods of being asleep and dipping in and out of unconsciousness get longer. And then eventually the person is not just asleep, but actually unconscious all of the time. So when we're deeply unconscious, the only bits of the brain that are working are firstly the bit that drives the breathing. And secondly, we now know from some recent research in Canada that the brain is still responding to sound. But the thing that families will see around the bed of a dying unconscious person is that the other bit of the brain that's still working is the bit that drives the breathing. And what it does now is just cycles of automatic breathing. So it moves backwards and forwards between deep breathing and shallow breathing and between slow breathing and fast breathing. Now, if you've never seen that before, it's really weird. And it's possible to mistake what you're seeing and hearing for distress. Mm. For example, people who are deeply unconscious, they can't feel the back of their throat anymore. They might breathe out through their voice box without knowing it, which sounds like, "Mm." okay, well, if my mum was making that noise, I might think she was uncomfortable. I might think she was groaning. I might think she was trying to say something. So it's really important that somebody who understands what's going on, tells me now so I don't enter my bereavement thinking my mum was groaning or distressed. Similarly, because people are generally being nursed lying on their backs, any saliva that might be in their mouth or any of the fluid that we use for keeping people's mouths moist and comfortable, that will end up at the back of their throat. It's only going to be a little, you know, teaspoonful, but they won't cough or gag or clear it because they can't feel it anymore. So now we'll hear the air that's going in and out of the windpipe completely freely, but it bubbles through that little bit of fluid and it makes this really weird bubbling, rattling noise. And again, I have people say to me, I think my dad drowned. I think my dad choked. And actually, no, the noise is actually only there because the air is moving in and out freely Mm. and it's making this noise as it goes through that tiny bit of fluid. And that rattling is sometimes called the death rattle. And we say it as though it's something terrible, but actually what it's saying is, look, this person's so deeply unconscious now, they can't even feel the back of their throat. They're beyond feeling distress and discomfort from the rest of their body. They are safe. And gradually the breathing slows down. Sometimes it's one of those phases where it slows right down and we think, oh, it's stopped. And then it starts again. We all go, and again, families can find that very disturbing. Mm. But at some point, usually during one of those very slow phases, there will be a breath out that just doesn't have another breath in after it. And because usually people are expecting something that they've seen on television dramas or cinema, that the last breath should be something special and amazing and or difficult or panicky. Families sometimes don't even notice it's happened because it's been so gentle. Mm. There's no sudden rush of 
pain or breathlessness the very last breath there's no sudden feeling of fading away or panic it's it's incredibly gentle we've probably already both of us had days in our lives that are more uncomfortable and more distressing mm. than the last day of our lives is going to be because dying itself doesn't cause any symptoms other than becoming unconscious and those strange breathing patterns it is really really comforting to hear that that a, a death from a from a long illness something like a cancer can be very very calm and peaceful and i've been so comforted by you explaining that and i'm really happy that you've explained it on my podcast so that more people can hear about it and i really also hope that nurses and doctors talk to the loved ones of the dying to to explain to them what what happens because there's so many times where i've been in a medical setting where i've not completely understood what was going on or what was being said around me and I've had I've been able to ask but I know a lot of people probably wouldn't ask and will probably just walk away confused so thank you for explaining Catherine that was wonderful I'm going to finish off by asking you the questions I ask everyone on this podcast which are more about you um so your relationship to food fuel or pleasure oh a little bit of both so I'll think very carefully about what I'm eating on days when I'm going for a run. I'm not a great runner, but it keeps me fit. Um, but yeah, I have some great food pleasures and they're very simple and marmalade on hot buttered toast is definitely top of my list. <laughs> Favourite meal of the day? Oh, breakfast, marmalade on hot buttered toast. Okay, brilliant. Sensing a theme. Name one meal that always makes you feel happy. Bacon has to be crispy with mashed potatoes with butter and pepper in and uh, fried tomatoes. Oh. It's a comfort food from when I was a child and I absolutely love it. It reminds me of home and being looked after by my mum. Oh, wonderful. Name one food that has healed you. Now, I knew you were going to ask me this question. I've been around the houses with it and can't think <laughs> of a food. But when I've been in a place of deep sorrow or loss, then making and drinking a cup of tea is, is a ritual as well as the contents of the cup being comfort. Um, it's the thing that I go to when I don't know how to be. Yeah. One dish that reminds you of family. I grew up on Merseyside and the uh, the Liverpool um, dish that my grandmother taught my mum, who taught her daughters to make, is a stew that's called scouse. Mm. Um, and so our scouse is the family recipe, so it's referred to as Timmons scouse. And yeah, always reminds me of those generations of women. One recipe that everyone should know how to cook. I think we should all know how to bake bread. And yep. There's something wonderfully therapeutic about the kneading and you have to be involved in making bread. It's not the same mm. as making something on a stovetop. It requires your diligence and your attention and your muscle power. Yes, I love it. Very therapeutic. Yeah. Uh, your best meal ever? Best meal ever was in the middle of the winter in the old town in Stockholm and I was there with my husband 
they were small children were being looked after at home by their grandparents. So it was unusual for us to be out. And we found a little restaurant that was barely lit. Lighting in Sweden in the winter is very dim. I then began to understand IKEA lighting, which is also <laughs> very dim. Because, of course, the sun doesn't, doesn't shine very much over the winter. And it was a series of tiny courses of things that we couldn't understand on the menu that were simply brought to us and offered to us by a very, very lovely waiter who didn't speak very much English. So I have no idea what that meal was, but it was a series of delights that ended with our creme brulees that had three different types of wild berries mm. in the in the sauce under the custard. And it was magical. It was dark. It was twinkling candlelight. I was with my lovely husband. Our children were safe. Mm. The restaurant was a cocoon. And every course was a mysterious delight. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Do, do you remember the name of the restaurant? I have still got the receipts on. <laughs> so finally some food for thought what is the one piece of advice you would give to people in terms of food and death that when we think about death we need to think about both sides of the coin that death and loss is the other side of the coin from life and love so when we are thinking about our food we need to think about celebration and gratitude as well as loss Oh, thank you so much, Catherine. That's wonderful. Is there, I'm going to ask you one of your own questions now, is there something else you'd like to add? <gasps> Beautifully done. <laughs> like the word something there. Something instead um, of anything, because if you say yes. if there's anything, is there anything else you'd like to add, then often the question is yes or no. But if you say something, then the idea is that you feel more open to, um, to, to, explore to, to giving a longer answer I guess and that's something that I learned from your lovely book Listen. And that's from um, the research of my friend Professor Ruth Parry um, and the Real Talk team at Loughborough University and co conversation analysis. So if there's something else I'd like to add I'd like to add that I want to wish you very well in your really important conversations because I think if we call them difficult then yeah, we can make them difficult. We'll take difficult in with us. But I think once we call them important and once we realise that they're about tenderness, then tender is not just something that we talk about for food. It's something that we talk about for people too. So I hope you have really flourishing tender conversations. Thank you. I'm going to do that and then I'm going to finish them with cake to celebrate. Oh, oh achievements. yeah, absolute cake. <laughs> Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Whilst we were recording it, a hearse drove past uh, because I live next to a graveyard. So um, a, a kind of weirdly all-rounded experience hearing Catherine, Dr. Catherine Mannix talk about death uh, at the same time as seeing a hearse drive into a graveyard. You can find Dr. Catherine Mannix on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Catherine Mannix. And her website is withtheendinmind.co.uk. You can also buy her books, With the End in Mind, and listen, 
How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations, both of which I highly recommend in audio form where you get to listen to Catherine's wonderfully soothing voice. I think today's podcast has also given us a bit of a lesson and I'd like you to go away and think about that question. What meal or dish would you like your loved ones to celebrate your life with? Catherine enjoys hot buttered toast with marmalade. Is there a dish or a food that particularly defines you or makes you happy? I think mine would probably be a Sunday roast and particular, particularly Yorkshire puddings and roast potatoes. I like the idea of my family members thinking of me and remembering me as they stick their fork into another roast potato. Because as they all know, I can eat probably more roast potatoes than anyone else ever. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Price Writes for more information on my past and future podcast guests. And you can buy my novel, Single Bald Female, which explores a woman who is diagnosed with breast cancer and meets an incredible person who is living with secondary breast cancer in the hospital. And they form a remarkable friendship. They also spend quite a lot of time in the hospital drinking tea and eating cake. And I think when I wrote those scenes, it was a a subconscious, unconscious thing where I didn't really even think about it. But just the, the, the ritual of tea and cake was such a natural thing, which I think Dr. Catherine has kind of explained in this episode. If you are enjoying this podcast, if you could please go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and give the podcast a review or rating and also hit the subscribe button it will really really help other listeners to discover the podcast it's quite difficult to find the place to give a rating on apple podcasts and on 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 spotify sometimes and and i don't think you can do it at all on google Podcasts. so if you are struggling with it please ask me uh, and i will help you find it Uh, it turns out it's much easier on spotify to find the place to give the rating anyway thank you in advance to anyone who has given me a rating or a review or subscribed i really look forward to and i really enjoy making these episodes and i want to keep making them for as long as possible so i'll be back in another two weeks with a fresh episode and i would love to hear from you if you're enjoying it and i'd love to hear what you thought of this episode Thank you for listening to Life and Food with Laura Price. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.